That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. I'd like to take a few moments to talk about the importance of independence in filmmaking, particularly in genre filmmaking. For years, horror films were almost exclusively made by independent sources, blood and guts and the less polite elements of society that are the meat and potatoes of horror films were way too rude for the studios to handle. Yes, Universal was the studio of monsters in the 30s and 40s, but they were big productions, beautiful films, but pretty bloodless and pretty tidy. Even the giant nuclear monsters and their brethren that were set loose in the hardtops and drive-ins in the 60s, shocking though they might have been at the time, were still polished and trustworthy. They might provide some frights and nightmares, but extreme storytelling was not at all common. By the 1960s, however, there was an independent underground that climbed out from under the rocks and got their movies into the cinemas. Movies that broke the rules, didn't say please and thank you, that didn't necessarily have happy endings, that dripped with blood and a level of violence that had never been seen before. Paramount's release of Psycho may have kicked it off in 1960, but Carnival of Souls, The Thrill Killers, Night of the Living Dead, The Sadist, Deranged, Peeping Tom, the films of Herschel Gordon Lewis, they would never have happened through the Hollywood studio machine. Yes, there was a lot of cruel, unnecessary garbage that happened once it was discovered that you could make a movie cheaply, without movie stars, on 16mm film, and get it released into the same movie theaters that played the blockbusters. It awakened a sleeping giant of bad taste and dark dreams. But some of those dark dreamers were artists, men and women who truly had a vision and no access to the studio machine. Visionaries like George Romero, Roman Polanski, Mario Bava, Roger Corman, and their contemporaries could only come to full creative flower in the world of independence. But independence also meant the ability to tell original personal stories that would otherwise go unseen. Movies are made for an audience, but they don't all have to be made for the biggest possible audience. The more a movie costs, the more levels of approval it has to pass through, and the more fingerprints are left on it. The auteur theory goes out the window when your movie costs $200 million. But losing the handcuffs created cinema artists. Not only were the films less censored, so were the ideas. And they got personal, and personal horror really gets under the skin. David Cronenberg was inspired by a horrible marital breakup to make The Brood. Guillermo del Toro made Kronos and The Devil's Backbone. Toby Hooper made The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Jennifer Kent made The Babadook. Karen Kusama made The Invitation. Jordan Peele made Get Out. Often their independent films gave them the keys to studio features, even to Oscars, as in Guillermo's The Shape of Water. But in so many cases, the best work by visionary storytellers is done outside of the system. 
Speaking of independence, our guests on this episode, Elijah Wood and Daniel Noah, created their own independent studio, Spectrovision, and have been responsible for bringing extremely feisty original genre films like Mandy and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, among many others. They also host the new podcast, Visitations on Shudder. You know Wood's work as an actor, of course, but we're going to talk with him and partner Daniel about their love of renegade genre films after this. Elijah Wood, yes, that Elijah Wood, and Daniel Noah are two of the partners behind the award-winning genre production company Spectrevision, responsible for the Sundance hits A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and Mandy, just to name a couple. The two producers have always been fascinated by the dark allure of horror, and on Visitations, their first podcast, they explore the exhilarating, entertaining, and sometimes even therapeutic experience of facing one's fears in art. Each episode, Elijah and Daniel travel to the home or workshop of one of their favorite creators in the genre community and beyond. Visiting with filmmaker Taika Waititi, director and star of What We Do in the Shadows, and Thor Ragnarok. Mike Flanagan, writer-director of Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House and the upcoming Doctor Sleep. Anna Lily Amarpour, writer-director of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and The Bad Batch. Rick and Morty co-creator Dan Harmon. Musician Flying Lotus. Fashion designers Kate and Laura Molivi of Rodarte and more. Listen in on intimate conversations with these exciting artists as they explore the ways in which they've turned their deepest, darkest fears into art. Season one of Shudder's original podcast, Visitations, is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Shudder.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. Well, let's get into background and, and how it started for you. Elijah, you were into music as well as work as an actor from your very youngest years. Uh, which came first? Um, or did you separate them? Film. I mean, I, I started working very young. I was seven when I moved out to Los Angeles from Iowa to audition for commercials, which is initially what my mom thought I would do. Right. Um, and that parlayed into films relatively quickly with small roles in, in certain films. And then my first sort of larger role was in a movie called Avalon. Um, yeah, that was one that particularly made people sit up and take notice. Ah, well, 
Well, anyway, including me. (laughs) Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I was eight when I made that. Barry Levinson's was part of his um, Baltimore trilogy, I think, Mm -hmm. of films. Um, So I fell in love with 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 acting and cinema. That that was my my sort of entrance into this realm of uh, this, this sort of creative realm. Music came to me later, and it, it it never really parlayed into anything more than simply a hobby. Like I've been a record collector, and you know, uh, I had a small label at one stage. So um, Simeon Records is no longer. With it's us? no longer a thing. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I but I DJ. I play other people's records, and music's a huge part of my life, and and ultimately a part a big part of what we do at Spectrevision too. So I, I that that interest and that love of music has been parlayed into our endeavor of, of, of producing genre films because like it's very important to Daniel as well and we almost have this sort of curatorial approach to who we get to do our, our, our music for our films. And we were in music management for That's true, a, yeah. a while. Um, mm-hmm. We ended up, for various reasons, deciding to, to get out of that business, but that was, uh, <clears throat> out of the gate, very important value to us was making sure that we were creating progressive movie scores. And so we very early on had the idea that we should reach out to composers who were making avant-garde electronic neoclassical music who had not scored before Mm. uh, because they were making sounds that were fresh and to see if we could recruit them to scoring movies. And so, you know, we managed Johan Johansson and Hauschka and, and, and gave a lot of these composers their first jobs we i'm a it. huge fan of progressive rock and was in a progressive rock band you were oh really what was back when what was it called feathers horse but, feathers uh, yeah yeah you won't find any albums <laughs> but but i mean music and film it all film is the composite art form yeah you've got composition you have music you have performance you have cinematography mm-hmm. you have writing mm-hmm. and acting all Custom, of these things yeah. are are such a huge combination into what this this package <clears throat> becomes mm. and it seems like you guys both have an interest in all of those fields we yeah. do yeah yeah i think it's it's really i think there there can be both in genre and in independent film sometimes a laziness about production value and 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 I, it's it's always been very important to us that even though we're often working on limited budgets, that we really f- we find a way to to make sure that we're delivering on, in every department uh, with what we have. Mm-hmm. Well, you talk about limited budgets, Elijah. You have worked on the biggest of movies as an actor in the Lord of the Rings movies, right. the Hobbit films, and the like. But as a producer, you've chosen to go very independent. Mm. So tell me, was that? A cognizant choice for the the sake of freedom, creative freedom, or was it that was where you could get your greatest foothold into what you wanted to do? Um, I think a little bit of both, but it, it was it, it 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 lends itself to the kinds of films that we want to make. Um, I don't know that we could have made any of our films thus far at studios. Mm-hmm. When we when we first started the company, ultimately what we realized we were looking for were things that people had passed on or were too difficult for for you know larger budgets or studios to to get their head around and and we found that those sort of ugly stepchildren or beautiful stepchildren yeah. the things that we wanted to make and, and and ultimately the things that we fell in love with and wanted to start a company to begin with right so we could never have done what we've accomplished over the last nine years at at a studio we could never have made mandy we could never have made a girl walks home alone at night that movie was black and white and in farsi there's yes. no way we could have made that so yeah. we we just wanted to be a place 
that supported visionary filmmaking and ideas in genre that were slightly unexpressed or slightly outside the box. We didn't want to make your typical genre movies because that was being well handled and is currently being well handled by a lot of different people. We wanted to make things that were that we hadn't really seen before. And that very much lends itself to an independent approach to give our filmmakers the freedom to make the kind of choices that they want to make that weren't going to be dictated by someone up on high who's got, you know, who's holding the purse springs. Now, your folks ran a deli when you were a kid, right? Yeah, you've done your research. <laughs> I try. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I also just like to know about the artists I'm interested sure, in. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so were your parents into the arts as well? Were they the ones who encouraged you, or did you find it yourself? They Look, I think movies were a big part of our upbringing, but I wouldn't say that my family or that my parents were cineists. Or they, right, right. But they, they, they but loved movies. did they movies. play instruments? Did they draw? Not really. Did, my dad yeah. was a big music fan, so music was always around. I have an older brother who's seven years older than me, so he provided a lot of my cult- cultural reference mm. points from music, uh, which was wide-ranging, and film as well, and genre film. Uh, my introduction my introduction to horror really came from my brother cuz i had the benefit of the older brother who would bring his friends over with you know rented movies from the 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 video rental store taboo to you yeah. completely <laughs> and he would be like yeah you can you can watch this as long as you don't tell mom <laughs> and that happened all the time and i got exposed to really fucked up shit when i was like 7 <laughs> years or younger what really rocked you first what was the one that you got away with seeing that that maybe converted you the thing that sticks, the movie that sticks out in my mind is a direct-to-VHS feature called um, Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness. Oh, yeah. Directed by Tim Ritter. Yeah. I love that film. I right. still love that movie. It's it, 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 it's the, I mean, there is that thing of the it's so bad, it's good genre. Right. It has a bit of that, but it's, it's deeply funny, maybe un, unintentionally. I love the performances. It's just, it, it has that quality that direct-to-VHS films have mm-hmm. that I think I really enjoy. Um, there's, they're earnest, and they're made with very little resources, but they fucking put everything into those limited resources, and you can feel it. it. Yeah. It absolutely does, yeah. and it, it comes off the screen. So I remember seeing that when I was... I had to have been six. Wow. Six or seven, maybe seven. That's maybe a seven. pretty heavy-duty one to, yeah. to, to break your cherry with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and I loved it. Yeah. And I still do. I recommend it to a lot of people. <laughs> Daniel, what about your background? Did you come from a family that was artistically inclined? Very much so, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, I mean, I came from a fractured family, but the household that I grew up in was um, musicians and writers. Uh, so my, my grandfather, uh, who was a very active part of my life very young was a jazz musician by trade so he would you know he supported a family of five his whole life playing gigs uh out in clubs wow. and then his eldest daughter <clears throat> judy roberts who still plays in chicago and, and in arizona uh was also uh she was a, a, you know a very beloved local jazz performer as well and was releasing albums and my stepfather was a journalist he was a, a ro- reporter for the chicago sun times and so yeah, it was really valued um it, you know in my family uh the arts and creativity was uh you know it was, it was just sort of in our blood mm. Were you also a genre fan from an early age? Yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah, I was um, for a lot of reasons, uh, I think. But uh, my that beloved grandfather whom I invoked a moment ago, uh, when he – my parents split up when I was two and my mother worked. And so he would take care of me 
uh, and my grandmother worked as well, but he was free during the day because he mm-hmm. worked clubs at night. So he would take care of me. Um, and uh, we would watch the Universal Monster movies. Oh, nice. Saturday matinees and a little black and white TV on the kitchen table. I and, used to and, do that with my mom late at night, you know. Really? She, she was really good about it. My home was a fractured one as well uh-huh. from an early age. I find a lot of genre fans come from outsider families. Yes. And, yes, we've discovered that as yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I had a real, uh, I mean, it, but I think there are a lot of, the, those Universal Monster stories, I think, you know, when you go back and really look at them closely now, they are stories of sympathetic outsiders who are, you know, there there are a few exceptions. The Invisible Man is a terrible, terrible person, but <laughs> yeah. but for the most part, the monster in Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the creature from the Black Lagoon, um, they're all um, pretty sweet. They're all misfits. They're all misunderstood. They're all they're all um, they're all made into monsters. They're not born that way. Yeah, their stories are tragic. They're very tragic. Yeah, very sad. Yeah. So I love those films, and and I think because I was watching them with someone that I had such a loving relationship with, so young, I I started to associate horror with sort of a safety and a comfort, and um, uh, that you know has never left me. So it was your pig pen blanket. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So when you were working as an actor as a kid, mm. Elijah, um, were you hoping to be able to do horror stuff? Uh, that's interesting. Mm. Um, when I was that young, maybe not from a filmmaking standpoint, maybe as right. an actor. But yeah, as be, an actor, to, that's yeah, what should I mean. Be in, yeah. In, yeah. In, when did you in formalize kind of for yourself that you that horror, horror was something that you wanted to do as it's, opposed to just... Uh, that didn't come until I was older, yeah. until I was in my 20s. Right. And I realized that I wanted to produce by means of just wanting to facilitate f- the kinds of films that I wanted to see and facilitate filmmakers right. that I love, which all existed in the genre space. Um, but I don't know. Look, I think there are the these little... The good sun is close. It is. Yeah. And I remember being really conscious of it at the time, yeah. reading the script and, and knowing that there was a pretty massive divide from what I had been previously working on, which were sort of more family-oriented, um, lighter fare, mm-hmm. to something that was pretty dark with a really <laughs> twisted kid at the center of it yes. who did horrible, horrible, sadistic things, uh, and I loved it. <laughs> I, you know, I understood what that yeah, was, yeah. and and um, I was I was keen on that. But you know, there were, there were things like I remember being, I must have been nine when I was on the set of. Uh, of radio flyer yeah and it was it was over halloween and i i was obsessed at the time with uh the phantom of the opera mm-hmm. the, the musical not the, the yeah. not the film right, right. um okay. but i i still loved that that tragic character of this mm-hmm. horrific you know disfigured human who yeah. was in love with someone who was made into this monster it's yeah. very much in mm-hmm. that realm and and the makeup department on the film actually made me up as <gasps> The Phantom of the Opera oh, for Halloween. Halloween. Oh, wow. like, photos? Did it, I do <laughs> somewhere. Well. Like, amazing. Yeah. How, how accurate was I mean, Very good. Like, yeah. And, like, and everything? Oh, yeah. I had prosthetic like latex oh, right, all over my right, face. The and then I had the mask. So I could take the mask right. off and there would be a <laughs> right. burnt face. Whoa, yeah. It was really that's cool. That's so cool. So these, there's these little touchstones throughout. But in terms of like, yeah, wanting to, wanting to pursue genre, 
that really crystallized around the time that we met. Mm-hmm. And how did you meet and how did that come yeah, together? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So we met um, the three the three original founders of SpectraVision, who were the two of us and Josh Waller, met in, I think it was about 2009. It was about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where, so at that time, I had been working as a screenwriter, uh, a frustrated, well-paid but unproduced screenwriter <laughs> in Hollywood. Not an uncommon story. I've been there too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Josh was, uh, you know, had been making short films and was trying to make a first feature so we had a project that i'd written that josh was going to direct that elijah attached to play the lead in along with a couple other actors and that Which movie, film was it? it never happened oh um uh, it was called i'm from the future it was a comedy it wasn't a horror film but isn't it, that going to happen uh i maybe someday oh, by okay. surprise but I, it's, there's on, no... it's on the list as upcoming of uh, oh is it still on imdb oh okay uh, oh interesting I, yes. okay we take that yeah, down yeah, we should probably yeah. take that off um <laughs> Uh, but that's how we met Taika. That's how we, also how we met Taika Waititi because at yeah. one point the the company that was producing the film was like we can't raise the money with Josh, and it was a very painful thing. But he he was like I'll step aside and be a producer on it, and then Taika attached, and then they weren't able to pull the money together, and then he went off and made what we do in the shadows. Right. right. And we went off and started a company. Um, and he went on to do zillion dollar movies. Yeah, and we didn't. <laughs> but, yeah, um, uh, but so, yeah, I mean, we became friends through the process and, mm. and you know, we just started hanging out a lot. And because it, it was that was an, a sort of an unusual thing where we approached Elijah with a treatment and basically said, like, we want to write this for you. And but like, we can't do that if we don't know you're interested. So, you know, what do you think? Like, mm-hmm. let us write this for you. If you don't like it, you can just pull the ripcord at the end. But so we ended up sort of like producing together and inadvertently yeah. like crafting a movie together and then that movie didn't happen but i think we felt a real um kinship and we did on a lot was of working. on a lot of levels yeah, yeah. And we and just started hanging out a lot and and during those times where we'd get together to discuss this other movie that really was just an excuse for us to hang out we we talked a lot about genre movies yeah. we talked about horror a lot and music. it kept coming up music <laughs> yeah, as well yeah. and it kept coming up and i had been sort of bouncing around this idea of starting a production company for some time and I hadn't quite zeroed in on horror and genre as mm-hmm. being the the focal point until we, we all started hanging out and it yeah. just became crystal clear that yeah. that's what we had to do together. Yeah. So, you know, he proposed it to us and I, I think Josh and I had never thought about being producers and that was <laughs> in some ways felt like, you know, a little bit like changing teams or something right. and I, I now understand that a producer is a creative position but I think at yeah. that time the producer was very other to me yeah he's but, on the other side yeah yeah, yeah. but we, we we gave it a shot and you know i think one thing i've learned in this business is that you know you know man plans and god laughs it, <laughs> be, per, being a producer and having a company was never a dream but mm-hmm. when something's working you run toward it and mm-hmm. it just started to work immediately just it was and in, in ways that i think for me is my my screenwriting career wasn't happening <laughs> and and i was like we're getting movies made and not only were they were we getting movies made but they were the movies we wanted to make yeah, right. which as you know when you're your writer for hire you're begging you're you're opening up your wrist to get a job you don't even want yeah you know you i I don't even like this movie yeah and so that was i hated that and i was ready to be done with it and didn't care how much money they were paying me. you may as well be in another business that's how i felt yeah so anyway so yeah it it, and then you know and then we we were off and running we were also talking a lot at the time i think what was really starting to crystallize for us too is that at the time there wasn't a place in the u.s that was the go-to company or mini studio that to make the the kinds of horror movies that that we love, 
And we love all kinds, but the stuff that we were kind of connecting on were things that at the time were primarily being made in Europe, things like Let the Right One In, mm. um, or The Orphanage, um, or Martyrs out of, out of France. Um, these, these films that take their subject matter seriously and to a certain degree where you could remove the genre elements and still have a compelling story. Where they're not aimed at teenagers. Right. Yeah. Or franchises. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, totally. And they don't just simply rest on their exploitable elements, that there's something at its core that's meaningful. And then that then extrapolated on t- into, well, what are the horror movies that we grew up that we love? What are the, you know, the golden mm, age of horror. Yeah, Rosemary's Baby, Don't Look Now, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. These were profound who were making these films. literary stories. And, and, you know, I think ten the, the industry has changed a great deal in the last decade yeah. um, for, the, for better, the better, I think, in, ter- <laughs> yeah. in terms of what, what is valued in the genre space, in the indie genre space. Um, and, and uh, well, I mean, the studios aren't making horror movies. They're releasing them sometimes. But, yeah. um, oh, and the ones they're making have numbers in the title. Yeah. Right. Typically. Yeah, exactly. But I, th- I think, you know, 10 years ago, horror was a fairly robust business, but it was generally being geared. It was more grindhouse than art house mm-hmm. and and I think our interest was in either bringing those two together but or really leaning more into art house and I think our thought was well if if horror is in terms of sales and mar- you know the market considered at a budget safe mm. why not take advantage of that to try and do something greater and try and sneak in a Bergman film or a mm. you know a, you know dry, you know the, at its heart is is a Bergman-esque experience or uh, you know, et cetera, um, rather than just doing, you know, the easy, like, it's seven attractive young people in bikinis right. who are picked off one by one in the woods. And, I, you yeah. know, those are fun, but those are fun enough. Too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to there's add enough to, the to Yes, <laughs> there's enough to last us to the end of humanity with that type of film. And so, you know, I think, you know, for us, it was we wanted to create the kinds of movies that we loved, which mm-hmm. were, you know, movies that um, lift you up, that make you think about things and you're, they're not just purely escapism and, and, and you know, the, the films that we really, that moved us so deeply, which we name checked in the last five minutes, you know, are, are films that are about important subjects. They're about love and loss and marriage and fatherhood and, you know, motherhood and, uh, you know, and uh, grief and longing. And, you know, the, these are the feelings that horror can address. Faith. I mean, Faith. that's what that's what that's what yeah. the exorcist is about. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it, whereas yeah. I think, you know, what we've come to believe is that when you if you if you put those themes in the front row, n- audiences aren't necessarily going to want to sign up for that experience. What right. you got to do is you got to invite them in a side door, sneak them in. Yeah. yeah. And then you go, you know, surprise. This is a movie that asks you to confront your own death, yeah. uh, you know, and, and where mm-hmm. and 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 that's how, you know, you you entertain them and hopefully move them and help to make their lives a little better because that's what art's supposed to do. And in truth, isn't horror about confronting death? Yeah. Uh, more than anything. Yes. Uh, you know, it's about <laughs> loss. It's a, it's about mortality. Yeah. 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 Um did you find uh, is is the horror genre your favorite genre? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I think genre in general yeah. uh, is my favorite kind of cinema. Um I love all kinds, mm-hmm. but what I love about genre and horror is obviously a major part of that is it allows for creative choices that you couldn't get away with yeah. in a standard drama or a standard comedy. Um, it, it allows for flourishes. It allows for, you know, interpretation and exploration, both visually and and sonically, 
things that just wouldn't fit within the context yeah. of what one would consider a normal film. So that's why so many of the great directors that, that we look to now as the masters of their craft, they got started in genre. Because yeah. it allows for experimentation and playing with the medium in ways that is not as acceptable within the other, outside the confines mm -hmm. of genre. People who are not fans of the genre would be surprised to hear art and horror in the same sentence. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they think of it as just teenage franchises or it's, it's Saw or it's, the, sure. it's Cabin in the Woods, Stalker Killers and the like. Mm. But what are the things that, uh, that you're looking for when a director or a filmmaker comes to you and wants to do a SpectreVision film? I think a few things. I mean, certainly, first and foremost is vision. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah. Um, you know, we're we're interested in supporting visionary voices, but uh, I I know for me as head of development, I, there's a something that I am constantly saying, which is that we're we're not interested in any movie that doesn't have love in it, huh? um, which I think is very contrary to what people would expect to hear about horror. Well, um, emo horror is my thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, even, you know, well, even... Just like, it's just not a horror that's purely nihilistic. Not I purely nihilistic right. or, or, or purely sadistic. Yeah, and, and, yeah you there's know. a cruelty to a lot of modern horror, Absolutely. extreme horror, yeah. that is so ugly and off-putting to me that same. I, I, I don't want to feel like I have to take a shower after I feel the same way. Although... Yeah. I must say, I do love those movies. Some of them. You do, right. for I, sure. I, I think more than I Climax do. is fucking yeah. extraordinary. I, I and it's walked a, out of climax. Horrifying experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gaspar Noe is... Uh, they, yeah, he's yeah. intense. But there's another yeah. film that I'm... Uh, what's the film? Well, the anti, the, the, Antichrist. Well, the Antichrist. That, but, oh, right, what's yeah. the Haneke film? With the, um, oh, Funny Games. Funny, yeah, funny I, Games yeah. is a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. It's purely... It's the original pure nihilism. Yes, of course. I I would say I would love to make that movie. That would be contrary to our mission statement yeah. in that sense. I would support well, you. Well, you did make Maniac. Thank you. <laughs> but you, we, did, you did remake Maniac. That's true. We did not produce that, but I was in right. the remake yeah. of Maniac. People that's think true. we do, and I'm happy to let them I know. I love, I love, I love that movie. film. It's I love incredible. It yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'm sorry. I totally no, it's okay. It. Yeah. Uh, what were we talking about? Uh, just about yeah. oh. that we want our films to have some sense of uh, love or hope in them. Yeah. That it's yeah. not pure nihilism. And I agree with you yeah. ultimately. It's humanity. It's yeah, humanity. Yeah. What, yeah. It's humanity. So, and, and that doesn't mean that it isn't necessarily a dark or challenging experience, but I right. think if, you know, every film that we've engaged with has ultimately been about love. Yeah. And I think it's also the thing about horror sometimes is that people rely on the trick of horror rather than right. what the engine driving that trick mm -hmm. is. Yeah. So we're looking for an engine yeah. and that engine can be love yeah. or, or any number of things, but it can't just be a trick. It can't the just be the jump to cuts fuck are you easy. up. Yeah. That yeah. stuff's easy. Yeah. And forgettable. Yeah. The things that stick with you are the ones that hit you in the heart. And Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what gets under your skin. Yeah. Exactly. The, the no. scene that I always come back to, and I, I the, the Kaufman version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm. I think I, I, it's, it's time for me to say this is one of my you favorite You need to get films. that tattooed on your body. I know. It, I'm constantly bringing it it's up. An it's an amazing movie. It is. It's a magnificent it's an film, but the scene movie. where Brooke Adams turns to Ash in Donald Sutherland's arms is one of the most profoundly sad, moving depictions of losing someone that you love that I have ever seen and it is expressed in the language of science fiction horror and I in a way that you couldn't get away with if it were just a movie that were directly about losing someone you love you couldn't you couldn't do it and and yeah. I, I find that movie so haunting and and it's a great example of the puzzle of it's a movie that is utterly hopeless yeah I mean all, all iterations of body snatchers are the same that yeah. that, that it, it is there is absolutely no possibility that the protagonists will win. Mm -hmm. There's never a moment where you think 
I see how they're going to get out of this. So why are we watching? Mm-hmm. We're watching them cling to love and humanity until their last breath. And yeah. there's hope. something beautiful hope, about yeah. that. Hope. And hope and hope. That's incredibly beautiful and inspiring. Yeah. Uh, that's a Amen. really great way to put it because that is a movie that you think about after the credits roll yes. and the most yeah. potent ones that, that were made. I mean, going back to The Exorcist, even going back sure. to Night of the Living Dead, yeah. 1968. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here is the most depressing ending, yeah. but you it, it haunts you. Yeah. I feel like that movie changed the face of modern horror more than anything it, else. It absolutely did. Definitely. I feel like it literally like broke open the... Yeah. But it was, to your point, that movie was about God. You know, I mean, Blatty was asked once, I'm sure you know this, but yeah, yeah, like, why do people enjoy horror films? And he said, because if there's a devil, there's also a God. It's a comfort. Mm. There is a system. There is some structure to all of this. I had Blatty on my old Z Channel (gasps) show way back when. And Friedkin as well. You had a channel? You had a show on Z Channel? Yeah, Yeah, I'm gasping at all of those things. Wow, that's so Wow. And I had Blatty on, and... When we had William Friedkin on, we it was He's a tough we were enemy. showing Exorcist <laughs> and Exorcist Two on the Z Channel, mm. and um. he was so blasphemous about <laughs> Exorcist Two they wouldn't run the show yeah. because he just ripped the shit out of everyone who made John Borman, everyone who it's, was involved. It's, it's in understandable. Exorcist. It's it was, got a yeah. great score though. That's Ennio Morricone. It's Morricone. Yeah, yeah. and there's an amazing track that i've actually dj'd out have you really oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well three i love that that soundtrack uh, odd film but a very interesting oh, it's I really love come three. into its yeah. own yeah in recent yeah. years it's people have really come terrifying to it's yeah it's it's a strange movie bloody was as a director was an odd it was a very odd cadence to yes. his films that i think is similar to clive barker where you can there's a certain certain uh, amateurism that sometimes ends up accidentally being very effective and other yeah. times it just feels amateur but i that's kind of part of the charm of those movies i yeah. think well, and ninth configuration is another odd i love ninth i love ninth consideration and that's but why it, i had it, him on the z channel uh-huh. was to talk about that we showed that movie and it's that's, so weird it's so weird <laughs> it's, but it's wonderful that? the no. reviews were terrible yeah but blatty was originally a comedy writer it, it, yeah what yeah he and, wrote and it's funny, Glass Bottom Boat funny. And, you know oh, i gotta see that it's very it. odd yeah he, he wrote really the first time i ever saw him he was on You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. What? He was a con- contestant on You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. Wow. Bill Blatty he was his name. Wow. Then. But he's also a very devout Christian, Very was yeah. a very devout yeah. Catholic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, I mean, it, you know, that, that, that recut of Exorcist that I, I you know, in, in some ways is more an opportunity to see... Um, with the scenes added in, you mean? Yeah, like the, a yeah, flawed version girl. of. Yeah. I mean, the, there's some a couple scenes added. The there's the one walk. scene added where the the one to me the only scene that really should have been put back in. It's was, the scene with them speaking on the, on the, the landing of the stairs. Yeah. It's, why it's, is this happening? It's magnificent. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. It's yeah. The, it's the yeah. thesis yeah. of the movie. Absolutely, it's amazing. And, it, that and that Bla- never, yeah. Blatty was, I think, the one that was super yeah. upset he was that the it wasn't it. Friedkin, who was on the TV version of Postmortem, told me then that he did it for Blatty because Blatty really wanted it out. To have the new no, no he, he did he that restored cut. It back in the recut oh. was not a director's cut it was more a writer's cut mm. although Friedkin himself did it um, I but see. he did it mostly because Blatty really wanted to see it that way got it and he it had made its hundreds of millions of dollars so why not mm. go ahead. yeah he was yeah. apparently very upset that that particular scene was taken out yeah but the all of the additions with the cop 
and who's like you know revealed to have been like this kind of wacky Columbo figure yeah. is is a good example of when you should cut yeah. something out yeah. of a movie. Yeah. And <laughs> so, evidence that he was a comedy writer. Right. Getting back <laughs> to your point. But I think that's you know I mean that was that was actually something we talked about with Taika on the podcast was mm-hmm. that you know I made the observation that if you if you were to mic an audience in a comedy and take the sound out of the movie and mic the audience in a horror film, they sound exactly the same. And, you know, yeah. and that was, you know, when Jordan Peele was talking about making horror and people were like, what? I remember yeah. us going, that makes complete sense. It's, it's what I call Coliseum cinema. Ah. It's like, it's, it's, it's Good getting job. a big reaction and, 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 um, well, a physical reaction, horror and comedy both go for a physical absolutely. reaction. Yeah. Yeah. You scream, you grip your yep. arms or your chair. It's laughing all all of that stuff. And Absolutely. I, re- yeah. I remember seeing The Exorcist when it first came out on opening day uh, and giant theater filled with people so nervous mm-hmm. and laughing at any funny little thing that happened yeah. way more than it merited. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, you know, people had been hearing about an audience members throwing up and mm-hmm. passing out and all of that. And that was an amazing experience mm-hmm. to have. Oh, I can imagine. It's funny, though, isn't it, that comedy horror is such a hard nut to crack. Too. They're usually they're... not funny or scary. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or they're more or funny they're than scary. Or they're one over the yeah. other. Yeah. yeah. Rarely are they, do Rarely they combine the perfection both. of yeah. um, an American werewolf in London. Well, well which, that's... Which, you know, John takes issue with it being called a comedy. I know. Yeah. Uh, uh, I well, know. just as uh, uh, Friedkin takes issue with... Uh, Exorcist being called a horror film, mm-hmm. but, yeah, and as John well. said about Friedkin's statement, too late. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. which we yeah. said back to him, too late. Yeah. Well, that was on Cooties. We that was something we were talking about very consciously. Is let, let's try and actually hit both. Yeah, and Lee Wanell yeah. wrote Cooties, right? And Ian yeah. Brennan, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but we really wanted it to be, you know, to deliver as both a comedy and a horror film and splat stick as well. <laughs> splat in that stick, movie. yeah, yeah, splat stick, yeah, 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 yeah. Good splat oh, for stick sure. Uh, do you think that uh, surely your career as an actor has impacted your ability <clears throat> to get SpectraVision going originally and continue in that way? Is uh, is that some responsibility you bear on that? Um, in terms of people being aware of my work and there being a shorthand with uh, fellow artists in the creative community, yeah, I think... You know, we all had relationships with people and filmmakers mm-hmm. prior, so mm-hmm. I feel like everybody brought something to that table. But you know, insofar as people would know know things that I would had done, yeah. it might provide an introduction in a way that you know, yeah, it would have been maybe slightly difficult had they not. So yeah. that 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 I think, I think we were, maybe in the earlier days we were very aware of it at the beginning. Is you know that you're you know you're people knowing you helped doors open right. more quickly than they would have. But once those doors were open, we yeah. still had to deliver the goods. <laughs> right. It yeah. wasn't, you know, and, <laughs> so and I think you couldn't you rest know, on that. And when entirely. we started out and, you know, we went and met with like a, you know, all of our reps and they all kind of, they were not taking it real seriously. They were like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. another actor with his friends starting a production company. Okay, guys. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think, and, 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 you know, and to their credit and also to their, well, and to their credit and to their folly, I think yeah. that the, the, you know, when you tell someone at a major agency that you're about to embark on 
an independent horror film company. <laughs> With you your know, two friends. They're going to yeah. roll their yeah. eyes maybe yeah. or not yeah. take it as seriously yeah. if you were going to be embarking on something that in their minds is more marketable or, or easier to get sort of star power money behind. So yeah. I think that was also well, like, Plus I think they get, you know, a parade of these meetings. I'm sure. You know, and, yeah. But I, you know, but give credit where credit is due. Your agent, Brian DePersia at WME, was immediately supportive. Super and supportive. And has been supportive. one of our And Joanne Colonna at, at, and Joanne, at Brillstein yeah. as well. Very, they bo- yeah. Both of them really showed up and continue to be huge supporters and I think, you know, we're indebted to them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the changing world of distribution. I mean, this is an incredibly challenging time. Mm. People are still trying to figure out how to make streaming profitable. Uh, You know, is there room for independent film and theatrical distribution? The importance of festivals to particularly the genre uh, films. Hugely important. How much more difficult has it gotten? It seems to me the last two or three years in particular has been really, really rough. It's tough. Um, this is a conversation that's been going on for a long time because the, the the distribution models for films, the way that films are distributed, always change and have been constantly evolving and changing. It's a terrible time to make money. It is a great time for there to be multiple avenues yeah. for films to be distributed. Right. Mm-hmm. So those two things aren't mutually exclusive. You can make movies, but not money. <laughs> yeah, it's not a great time to see yeah. returns and to make a great deal of money or to, to, to put something out on 2,000 screens is fucking impossible. Mm-hmm. That's hard. But getting people around to rally around your crazy ideas or the movies that may or may not have gotten attention prior... And for those films to have find a way to find an audience on some distribution platform, be it a streamer, be it Netflix, be it yeah. a small theatrical Shutter. release, yeah. Shutter is, yeah. has been incredibly supportive to the community. Yeah. There, it, I, I can't outright say it's a horrible time. It's just a different time. The the way that film is distributed is different. I've always, you know, as streaming has taken more of a hold than theatrical, obviously there's a great deal of bemoaning the the lack of a theatrical release and a, and a time that seems to be passing us by. That being the case, I also think that, you know, there are people in, in various towns in the Midwest who never would have had access to mm-hmm. any of these films right. that because of streaming <clears throat> platforms like Netflix and even iTunes and Shudder, are being given access to films that they never would have been able to see because they're not going to the video store to rent these movies. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I see a positive outlook in, in the way that things are distributed now. It's, it's harder to get them to larger audiences, right. and it's harder to make money off of it. Well, we've know. got a, a movie currently now that I made, uh, Nightmare Cinema, mm-hmm. that is the most independent movie I've ever worked on in one sense well it was funded completely independently it was Mm -hmm. very low budget it was all like let's get together and put on our own show Mickey and Judy and you know it was you know it it looks incredibly polished we got an amazing group Mm -hmm. of actors and Mm -hmm. technicians and all Mm -hmm. uh, did it for much less than it looks like Mm -hmm. and we got token theatrical distribution Shudder is involved down (laughs) the line they're going to be uh they're going to be running it later in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's tough. Every penny yep. I got paid went back into the movie. Yep. And I made a movie, but I didn't make money. Yep. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future. But yeah. so how does a company that that works in this business model maintain itself and be able to get funding for yeah. productions? We're, we're a really odd 
we're outliers, I think, in many yeah. ways. And, you know, when we started the company, we literally said aloud to each other, let's see what happens mm. if we create a company where we choose projects based solely on our heart response to them, not on what the market needs. And then we try to bend the economic reality around that project. Um, let's it's an experiment. Let's try it. And I think that that's had uh, both a great benefit and also a great limitation. The limitation is that, you know, that we have not had a movie go to 2000 screens. Mm. We've come close a couple times, but it hasn't happened. But but uh, but we're also still here <laughs> 10 years later. And, right. and we've made, you know, actually enough films that I've lost count, which is, <laughs> that's a good I'd have thing. to stop and think about it for a minute. Um, uh I think that our greatest currency is that we mean it. Mm-hmm. And um, we've just been really blessed in that mm-hmm. we've, our sincerity has attracted other people who are sincere, including financial partners. And, you know, the last two movies that we made, Daniel isn't real and color out of space with Adam Egypt Mortimer and Richard Stanley. were both backed by a company called ACE pictures. Um, which uh, was kind of a fantasy scenario that, you know, we found a financier out of Malaysia who um, was genuinely motivated by um, wanting to make great genre cinema and not (laughs) so much, you know, um, and and supported us with their dollars and their spirits and their, and, um, and and they allowed us to make these two really out there, movies that that you know i i don't know who else would have done it and and so you know and now i i think hopefully we'll be announcing something soon but i think we're walking into another slate deal that will allow us to keep going for another handful of years so it's you know we we just um we i think there is a great power to actually um having a value system that you stand by yeah, and yeah. putting your money where your mouth is. And it's and a company with a philosophy. It's a company mm-hmm. with a philosophy that, that, you know, we maintain and we're, we're, I think we can be very frustrating sometimes to the people around us that are managing the economics of what we do, because we are incapable of doing anything dishonestly. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I remember hearing when I was at NYU and I was lucky enough to do some seminars with Sidney Lumet. And I remember him saying, you know, the genius of the greatest actors is that they are not capable of doing something dishonest. You can ask mm. them to, and if it doesn't feel honest, they literally cannot do the take that way. And I think, you know, I, I think we're kind of like that. Like yeah. we're asked to change ourselves or to repat and we try and we literally I'm, can't we're do it. To it. I, we can't yeah. do it. I'd yeah. rather not do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, our, our, our philosophy is that, um, you know, I was incredibly lucky to have a very close relationship with Jerry Lewis the last 10 years of his life. And, and one of the things, you know, he taught me a lot of things, but one of the things I remember one day he, he said, um, he said, kid, I want to tell you the secret to success in Hollywood. And I said, great. I'm all ears. And he said, you create a fraternity of artists the business people come and go but if the artists always have each other's back you will have all the power and there was a great wisdom to that because mm-hmm. it, this is something you've heard me say before but i would say a dollar is worth a dollar no matter whose wallet it's coming out of but an idea is individual 
It's unique to the brain that it came out of, to the heart that it came out of. Yeah. And that's the currency that we're interested in. So I think for us, where we've gone all in is, is, is in, in trying to identify filmmakers that we believe are important and vital and genuinely supporting and protecting them and challenging them yeah. um, and not exploiting them and giving them a good experience and helping them to realize the film that was in their heart and that that our our naive hope is that that will allow us to keep doing what we do in some way either and because that'll connect with people that, that'll connect with people that'll continue attracting the you know powerful filmmakers who are looking for that kind of purity and sincerity and and then and also financiers who are looking for that and so you know it's it's gotten it's kept us going for 10 years <laughs> Well, you guys are the United Artists of Independent Horror. <laughs> I love oh. that, except they went out of business. But yeah, yeah. yeah. but it's it, it is a company run by artists. You know, right. you're you're entrepreneurs, yeah. but you're also filmmakers yeah. and performers. I mean, that was the whole philosophy when I created Masters of Horror. Yeah. Mm -hmm. to get the best people possible. So cool. Say no rules. You can do whatever you want, mm -hmm. as long as you do it for this amount of money in this number mm -hmm. of days. Mm -hmm. And it's a philosophy that I think creates more great work than anything I've seen. Mm. For sure. Yeah. I and mean, we talked a lot about UA and, you know, that was, the, you know, and then, you know, Cruz Wagner and, you know, there, there's there's typically it fails. The endeavor fails when right. you put the, you know, when the inmates are running the asylum. And we're mm. very aware of that. And, you know, so we're, we've been very careful to make sure as we've grown, we're such as three of, I think we're a company now is 14 people mm -hmm. but you know we've been very deliberate about making sure that we're counterbalancing our lunacy with you know more sanity uh, uh, uh you know the, we have a lot of very smart as it happens by no design a lot of very smart women that we work with who um are, are make sure that what all of the crazy impulses that we have are organized in a way that keeps revenue coming in keeps the lights on well you've <laughs> yeah. remained in the philosophy you started with in that even uh AIP, you know, they thought, oh, yeah. we can make Meteor and make yeah. a, a big budget studio movie yeah. to compete with everybody else. Yeah. And they couldn't. No. And yeah. you have not overreached what your initial attempt was, mm -mm. you know? No, no. Um, and, and also, I think if you try and design your way into that sphere, it doesn't work either. It has to be organic. Yeah. Something has to come into your life. Yeah that you, you recognize as being something that's going to connect with people and you give that thing life. I, I think the idea of reverse engineering a success is lunacy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's, ne it's not, it's never, it's not going to work because it's not pure. You yeah. have to just find, either the idea has to be pure or you find something that's been written or a filmmaker that's got something that's like, okay, that is going to connect at a, on a larger agreed. level, you know, and we'll know it when we see it, I guess. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, Elijah, I, I do want to talk a little more about your acting career because sure. you had a great career as a kid and you were able to make that transition. Uh, I think Ice Storm was maybe the midpoint. That's interesting. Which yeah, is, I would say that too, actually. I, I think it's, first of all, it's one of my favorite films. Same. So good. One of my favorite of your films, but Thank just you. in general. I love that it's film too. It's a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Yeah. But you were able to transition into adulthood as well. Mm -hmm. And very, very few actors have been able to pull that off. Mm. Um, how do you think that you were able to traverse that course? I think it's multifaceted. Um, I can only speak because it, it's not by any fine design. Right. I don't, I think that's quite difficult to, to lay out a path for yourself in, in an industry that is 
opportunity based, especially as an actor, it's just difficult to navigate or create a path that you're like, I can, if I get from A to B to Z, it just doesn't work that way. Because you're given um, choices. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, you're at the mercy of what is available to you, what you can put yourself out there for. Um, I think some of it is being raised by, I give so much credit to my mother for raising me as a human being first and instilling me with a great sense of humility and never allowing myself to be defined by being an actor or the work that I did, but rather being defined as a human and that this was something that I did. So there was a real sense of normalcy and a ground in this. So I went to school normally? Yeah, I mean, I I ended up having to stop going to public school because the public school wasn't so psyched about me being gone all the time. Right. (laughs) Um, So I did a lot of homeschooling, but there was a great sense of normalcy. So I think that, that sense of groundedness helped me navigate that period of time where there are great pitfalls of success if you don't have that humility to sort of keep you centered. And so that, I think, had a lot to do with it. And I think I, I was I was luck too. I, I was never I was never pigeonholed for being one specific thing. As a child actor, I moved from being a child actor in in films that were maybe geared towards children or families into films mm-hmm. that were more adult. The Ice Storm is a really good example of that. Mm-hmm. And I think you're totally right. I do think that was sort of this interesting midpoint where did it feel transitional? It totally to did. Yeah. It, it did on a lot oh, of levels. Really? I was fifteen mm-hmm. or sixteen. How cognizant were you of like what it might have meant in terms of the transition about your, how you were perceived? Pretty and, cognizant yeah. in the sense that the material was a was a great leap. <clears throat> I'd never been a part of a film like that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I watched his uh, Ang Lee's films mm-hmm. prior, so mm-hmm. I was aware of his work mm-hmm. and recognized his level of mm-hmm. of skill as a filmmaker right. and as an auteur. And it was immediately different from an experiential yeah. standpoint as well. I was sent um, a, a, a printed out packet of information about the 1970s with excerpts wow. from books, wow. magazines, uh, advertisements, ephemera mm-hmm. from the era to familiarize myself with. I was given three, two or three CDs that my character might listen to. Wow. Do you remember? What mm-hmm. it, was, uh, it was, I think, Forever Changes. Oh, by love? <gasps> really? I think, by love? I think wow. so. Yeah, that's I think it was. I love that album. I believe it was. It was a Yes record, <laughs> and oh, it was Dark fragile? Dark Side of the Moon oh. from um, Pink Floyd. So wow. my character, and oh, and then we were also given a questionnaire for each actor to fill out as their character. Wow. So like, I was being asked to think about character development in a way that I'd never been mm, asked to before, wow. and that was hugely influential and. It was this incredible education of approaching the craft from a way that I'd never thought of before. And that included a, about a week to two week period at a dance studio in New York where there was formal rehearsals. And that was Tai Chi that we did together. Wow. Uh, each character who had a formative relationship in the context of the movie were put together as actors to discuss their relationship. And there was even movement training, working out sequences with lots of actors and how characters would move and it just it everything felt on a level that I'd never really thought about the process before so it was from there on out my life was changed the way I looked at cinema the way I looked at filmmaking the way I looked at acting and I think that that then led me into the next phase of being a teenager into being an adult and 
Well, the veracity of that time period is portrayed so beautifully as someone who lived there. (laughs) Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. But also just the sense of we talked about the sense of loss. It's Mm. not a horror film, but this Mm. real sadness and this Mm. overwhelming darkness Mm. to the drama was so powerful. It felt almost like a horror film. It's an uncomfortable film. Yeah. And wonderfully so. Mm. But I'm glad to know that that was particularly transitional for you. Hugely. Yeah. And I love the experience. And and it wasn't just working with Aang. It was working with that cast. It's such Sigourney Weaver, Kevin Klein. like what a what a truly exceptional group of people, yeah. both young and older, and they were all so generous. Uh, I was fifteen, and they were they <laughs> yeah. treated me like an equal, and mm-hmm. and that was hugely influential mm-hmm. to me as well. It was really an exceptional experience. Um, well, fifteen year olds are thoughtful too, and they're mm-hmm. never pro- right. portrayed that way. Sure, you know, uh, there's so much more to to their lives than a party totally yeah especially what happens to this group of young people yeah but now moving on to the hobbit films (laughs) to the rings films yeah suddenly this is movie stardom that had to be beyond what anything had happened to you before oh without question yeah so how how did that affect you what what were were the ways in which that had an impact on you Suddenly, oh, you're on covers of magazines sure. and all of this. Sure. Um, abstract. It's very abstract. I think I compartmentalized all that stuff very quickly. I was lucky enough to be one of the the group of actors amongst the whole group that had had some experience prior to being recognizable, even though it was at a much lower scale. Right. Uh, I had some experience. I've been working since I've been at that point working for 10 years. So I had some tools, nothing can prepare you for the, the degree of exposure and success that that it was meteoric. It was, you know, it becomes a part of pop culture instantly and, and it becomes this sort of piece of classic filmmaking so fast. Um, nothing can be really can really prepare you for that, but it, all I had was my experience making it. So what I rested on was, it's this thing now that is now a part of the universe that you all have, but my ownership is I've been spending four years in New Zealand making these films, <laughs> forging these relationships and having this very intimate experience. That was on a scale much, even though it was a massive scale, it was a scale much smaller than what it became publicly, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So as soon as we were suddenly on the sides of airplanes and on the sides of buildings, (laughs) I I very quickly compartmentalized those two things as, well, that's Frodo and that's Lord of the Rings and this is my experience. So you were able to protect your private life despite the spotlight? Yeah, It, it felt manageable. I mean... That's my that's my memory of the experience right. is just being able because I remember people would say God isn't it fucking crazy that you're on the side of that building and I was like yeah it's not but it's it's contextual <laughs> it's contextual it's yeah, yeah. this movie that's coming out I recognize that it's a big deal but well, I yeah I mean it, there was an adjustment of course I, I I can't I think it'd be silly to sort of write it off as having been like the easiest transition but. It, it, it was all in context. I think mm-hmm. I just very quickly was able to separate my my work and my experience, which was loomed so large for me because it was such an extraordinary experience making it, and what it then became and supporting the thing that it became and those mm-hmm. being two separate entities, I guess. Yeah. 
Let's just say my my observation is your close friend is you're by far the healthiest famous person I've ever met, <laughs> and and you know you, you that compartmentalization I think is incredibly healthy and and you know I've heard you say like you know about that like oh that's not me yeah <laughs> like you know and I and and I think a lot of people who are in your position do feel like that's them and it's not right. and, it, and it creates a difficulty with it's you know, having intimate relationships and sure. you know you you've been insistent on just being a normal person yeah uh, when you're not working and yeah or even when you are working and and it's you know it's some lovely. people want to be stars and some people yeah. want to be actors yes yeah. yeah the the wanting to be famous thing is not something i don't understand hmm. because it's what comes with being successful is, you know, um, scrutiny and, you know, it's difficult for, for people at, at levels way higher than mine to leave their homes. And that is not a, that is not a life that is, sh- should be, um, desired. I, I don't, under, <laughs> it's I don't understand. Horrible. It's so undesirable. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere I go, people interrupt me and yeah, <laughs> fetishize me. And they, yeah, it, it's, I, th- I find it a strange thing to want to achieve. Um, I think achieving a level of success that allows you to perpetuate what you love to do, that's awesome. That's, yeah, the, that's yeah. the ultimate, where you can kind of occasionally go under the radar, but you're recognizable enough to, yeah. you know, that people want to keep working with you. Yeah, I think to benefit from it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, you've also made a lot of really alternative independent choices even doing television wilfred yeah is not your standard television series definitely not <laughs> and uh dirk yeah. quickly's holistic uh, detective agency yeah also very quirky choices did you choose them because they were other than standard fare or was it just the choices available to it you? W- well uh maybe a bit of both but i think I don't think I ever consciously choose something because it's going to subvert people's expectations of what uh-huh. I'm going to do. I'm just attracted to interesting material that may be slightly left of center. So when it comes to Dirk Gently or uh, Wilfred, both of those were things that I read that I fell in love with because I thought they were weird and funny and it, they spoke to me. It's the same. Uh, yeah. It's the same process we have picking films for for um, for Spectavision. Is it's it's ultimately about a heart response. What you what you connect with and recognize that you can't not be a part of that thing. And more often than not, I suppose it tends to be slightly left of center, but I'm not actively looking for things right. to fuck with people. Yes. <laughs> so to producers and directors out there, <laughs> not just the quirky stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so what does the future of SpectreVision hold for us? Visitations. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get into that too. So, um, uh, yeah, visitations well, being the new podcast. It's on Shutter. It's on Apple. Yeah. All yeah. the usual places. Yeah, yeah. All the places you listen to podcasts. Well, we can go there. But we and a lot of the people yeah. who are guests on visitations have made movies with you. Uh, Some, Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wait. Panos, Anna Lily. And Panos and Lily. And, and that's and, it, I think. So well, far, the musicians yeah. and. Uh, well, we Flying Lotus. We haven't has, worked with Flylo. We were. We um, almost worked. We with almost worked with Flylo. Yeah. People you have a history with. Yeah, yeah they're all, all people, people that we have a history Taika with. Taika yeah. talked about how you worked in development with him. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. No, they're all people that we, we've we've known um, either very closely or, or, or you yeah. know, as, as acquaintances. But yeah. Well, the basic concept of the show, you know, sh- Shuddered approached us about creating a podcast. And I think, you know, we what we wanted to do with it was um, we felt like – 
you know, I think similar to Spectre Vision, we're like, okay, well, let's not do what is already being done and done well. Let's do what isn't being done. And I think mm. for us, what wasn't being that w- what we hadn't seen was um, uh, a podcast that was sort of less about career and more about what drives a career. And so, what we aspired to do was what we. We, we talk a lot about the Maisels brothers and, and oh, wow. you know, the, who made Salesmen and um, right. Great, Great Gardens. Gardens. And, yeah. and also, and, and but some of my favorite works from their, their them were um, the short films, which are, I think, almost impossible to find. But they did a, a short thing where they just went to Truman Capote's house and just filmed him doing nothing, like mm-hmm. doing the dishes mm-hmm. and going through his mail. And they did one with Brando that's unbelievable. And, and It's and, real fly-on-the-wall documentation. Yeah. It's not... They don't insert themselves. I mean, it, it, Great Gardens is a good example of that, too. Yeah. You're just with them. You're just with them. And you yeah. never... You don't... You rarely ever hear them. There's yeah. no... It's not... There's, there's no, no questions. There's no narration. There's no questions. It's just these yeah. people living. And... Yeah. Yeah. So I think we, you know, we the the concept of visitations is that we go to the homes and the workplaces of artists who are largely genre filmmakers, but we also meet with Kate and Laura Malivi Rodarte who did the, who directed a film Woodshock. Uh, they also designed they, the costumes, um, the ballet costumes for Black Swan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and are huge, huge horror fans themselves, but yeah. are primarily fashion designers. So we go, you know, we go to their homes and and we, you know, we make things very. Uh, unobtrusively and then our crew literally leaves and it's just the three of us and we and it's it's people we know to varying degrees you know either from acquaintances to close friends and and i think the idea was you know i think like when we were young and even now we're there are artists whose all you have is their work and that work is incredibly meaningful to you and but but what's less common is to have access to who they are as people Mm. and and so what our what visitations does is it it allows you to kind of um eavesdrop on a private conversation amongst three friends who or or, you know friends and acquaintances who are all you know in the in the same business together and and um what 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 are those conversations like and and you know we don't we try not to do a lot of talking Mostly listening. Yeah, when really we do talk, we cut ourselves out. Um, <laughs> uh, not, yeah. But you know, we so we, you know we are for we did Taika Waititi, we did Mike Flanagan, Anna Lilia Mirpour, John Landis, Flying Lotus, Redarte, Dan Harmon, uh, Richard Stanley, Panos mm-hmm. Cosmatos, and then we have one more episode coming up. Uh, we're recording tomorrow, and um, and what we talk about is we don't. It's not promoting any work or or talking about. It's yeah. what we talk about. Uh, kind of what we talked about a little bit at the beginning of this conversation. Why do you? What moves you? What motivates you? What scares you? What, what was your um, childhood? What was your childhood like? What informed on the person that you came to yeah. be? And and I think you know by by virtue of there being just the three of us in the room, every time at the end the guest says, "I forgot we were recording." <laughs> and 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 we've got, we've captured some really profound conversations mm. uh, about why people become artists and and specifically what has driven them to make dark stuff and and sort of the therapeutic value of horror and genre and and it's been quite moving and, and quite surprising I mean we've discovered some fascinating commonalities mm. that I think you actually alluded to at the top here. Um, uh, that we weren't, we didn't go in expecting to a- accidentally be conducting a psychological study. Where it could, <laughs> you know, we're, we're collecting data, um, uh, but but a lot of people had almost identical childhoods, 
um, very similar kinds of events happening, and then and then we started to realize that it was true for us too. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> the things that you know, certain the, things, yeah, cer- certain things, it's and a commonality. Yeah, yeah, a commonality, and 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 um. Well, it's like at the end of the day, it's a bunch of misfits, isn't it? It's a bunch of misfits. Yeah, yeah. and that wasn't the intention when we set out to interview these people as we were making a list of our hopefuls. We weren't tr- like that no. wasn't a quality we were looking for. Um, we were just looking for a diverse group of people who yeah. make, you know, art related to genre in some way. And it yeah. just happens that most of them are misfits. They're, yeah, they were. Yeah. And we are too, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. God for the misfits. I know. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, it's really a pleasure. And I just thank can't you so wait much. to listen to all of the visitations. Thanks, and, man. And uh, keep exploring the SpectreVision catalog. Oh, thank you. Mick, thank you so much for having us. It's an honor to be interviewed by you. It's Super it cool. It really is. Uh, couldn't be better to have you guys here. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, MickGarrisInterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.